Bible teach the concept of predestination? And if so, what does it mean? Does it mean that we're saved or we're lost at birth without, you know, essentially any determination or choices on our part? Religions have fought with this topic for years, and many Christian concept of predestination. The basics of predestination tend to revolve around the idea that God has already predestined certain people to heaven or to hell. And once a person is saved by Jesus, their salvation is secure. And it tends to therefore go along the or the other. Some people even believe that each event in our lives have been determined in advance before we were born. Things like when and how we would die, who we would marry, whatever might happen in our lives. So, is that correct? Has predetermined every detail of every person's life, including whether he would save some and condemn others. Are some destined to have good luck, while others are destined to face tragedy and hardship? Now, different churches then will take that adjustment, trying to rationalize things. So evangelicals say, yes, we're all on one path or the other, but God can pull us off the one path leading to death and put us on the other that's leading to living, and they would say, in heaven. So, if people are going to hell, he can still come back or to send missionaries, right? Then we have to send missionaries to every corner of the globe to bring people to the other path, to save them. Because after all, with that concept, it's all about the decisions made in this lifetime. So, regardless of the nuances, the generally accepted agreement around predestination is that once you're saved, you're always saved. I'm sure many of you heard that concept shared before. Is that biblical? Now, one thing to start with just thinking about that concept is that kind of thinking can make a person become somewhat fatalistic, right? It fills you with a belief that we have no power to make choices in any given situation, even if we know that choice could change things. It also means you don't have to accept responsibility. The problem with this concept is that it's denying another fundamental teaching throughout the Bible. And that is that we have the freedom of choice. And God holds us accountable for the choices that we make. Turn to Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11. Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11. So let's look at a couple verses that people say confirm that God has predestined everything. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Okay, so does that confirm that everything is predetermined by God? If so, then it would, when it talks about God's pleasure is it has to be to condemn some while others are being saved. Also, if he predetermines everything, then, of course, we have no free will. But in contrast, if we have choices to make, which is what free will is, right? Free will is the ability to make choices. Then God can't make all of the decisions for us. Turn next to Hebrews 2 and verse 10. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. So we know throughout the Bible that God says he has a plan that he has been working out throughout history from before creation. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So God has predetermined his most important plan, and that is to bring many sons 
and daughters to glory, as children forever in his family. If you'll turn to Philippians 1 and verse 6, and we know if we believe God is all-powerful, then we know that he can work through circumstances or control events when he desires to achieve an end result that he most desires. But are all the happenings in our life predetermined for us? Philippians 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So some people say this verse summarizes the guarantee of God's predestination. But when we read it in context, we see something very, very different. So I'd like you to start in verse 1. Philippians 1 and starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all of the saints in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer, prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, referencing the entire Philippian church, will complete it until the day of Christ. So here we see Paul was writing to all the saints in Philippi. And if you read the full epistle to the Philippians, it doesn't show you that every single person attending was exactly pleasing God in the ways needed to be guaranteed salvation. There are some other details, I think, that really get lost in translation. The word in, in verse 6, is the Greek word that's very often translated among. You don't need to turn there, but you'll recognize this verse. Matthew 11, 11 says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Same word. Now, let me finish that verse for you. But who, but I'm sorry, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That word among and in are the exact same word that's translated in Philippians 1.6 as in. So Philippians 1.6 is speaking about God's general approach to all being called rather than a specific promise regarding each person individually. Also realize the word you in Philippians 1.6 is plural. So it's kind of like the southern phrase, you all. If you want to literally translate what this verse is saying, it's saying, he who has begun a good work among you all cares so much that he will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. So this speaks to God's continual focus on reaching his ultimate goal, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, rather than saying that each and every person in the Philippian church, or those who read the letter, or hear it, who are claimed to be Christians, are guaranteed to be resurrected. Okay, so here's another question. Weren't some people chosen for tasks and roles from before their birth? Absolutely. I'm going to share a couple examples with you. I will give you the scriptures. Please don't worry about turning, but if you'd like them for your notes. God told Jeremiah, I knew you in the womb before you were born. That's Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. We've all read scriptures about Jesus Christ's birth being prophesied. Like Isaiah 7 verse 14 that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call, call his name Emmanuel. John the Baptist was predicted to his father, even though they were too old to have children, right? Luke 1. Jacob and Esau were predicted for the younger to be preeminent. Genesis 25, verse 23. You could even argue that Judas Iscariot was predicted to betray Jesus, the son of perdition. John 17, 12. Okay, so let's ask another question. Do we have evidence of God putting leaders including evil ones, in place? Yes, again. I would like you to turn to Romans 13, verse 1. But while I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. The beast and the false prophet. 
have not come yet. They've been prophesied well in advance. So is this true for all leaders on earth? Some people believe that based on Romans 13, verse 1. So let's read that together. Be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority, speaking to anyone who has the power or ability to exercise authority, except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed. Now realize that word can also be translated established by God. All right. In John 19.11, Jesus told the evil governor Pontius Pilate that his authority came from God the Father. One final verse, and then I will slow down on this, giving all these examples along the way. But Daniel 4.17, King Nebuchadnezzar, this evil ruler of Babylon, reports part of a dream that God gave him may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over the lowliest of men. So compelling examples, right? Does this close the case? Does this confirm that every person in authority, does this mean that the President of the United States now and all the senators and congressmen and leaders, as well as those who will be elected coming up, are all selected by God regardless of their strengths or their weaknesses? The Bible clearly shows that at times, God will place leaders, good and bad, in positions of great power for the explicit purpose of fulfilling his, his plans. And, you know, Daniel clarified that Nebuchadnezzar was not a very good man. He threw people alive into a hot furnace if they didn't bow to an idol of him. He threatened on his advisors of mass murder if they didn't interpret a dream correctly. The Bible also clarifies this is not always the case. Turn to Hosea 8 and verse 4. Hosea 8 and verse 4. Scripture shows that God will sometimes decide who will be the leading officials of a nation. He also allows people to pick to their detriment, national leaders whose values are not those taught by him in the scriptures. And he criticizes in this verse we're about to read his own people for doing that. Hosea 8 and verse 4. They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Okay, turn now to 1 Samuel 8 and verse 18. 1 Samuel 8, if you, just for context, is where God is giving Samuel all the warnings about what will happen if Israel is to have a king. So as you remember, there's a lot of negatives that are mentioned. I'm just going to pick verse 18 for us to highlight this point we're making here. 1 Samuel 8, 18 says, And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So the message to Israel was simple. God allowed Israel to have their own kings. But it was not the rulers that God wanted for them. The rulers could be evil. And if so, they would oppress them. Yet God would establish their position. Remember, that's the other meaning of that word appointed. Sometimes he didn't establish them for long because they were so evil, they were like, okay, that one's got to go. If you think about King Saul, he proved to be an evil king. All of the northern kings proved to be evil kings. I don't remember what the percentage is. Most of the southern kings proved to be evil. The people of Israel selected their kings without consulting God, and he allowed their choices. He granted these men the authority to rule as kings. So again, back to the big picture. God has a purpose for humanity, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He will accomplish that purpose through the leadership that he either allows or puts in place. He occasionally works to bring about circumstances that will cause a prophecy or a statement to take place. And if you look at the examples of those in the Bible, whether you think of your Jeremiah's or Elijah's or others that were chosen, 
those circumstances required for them or for us, if that ever happens to us, may not be our choosing or even to our liking. But ultimately, the choice to serve or not to serve is ours. Like Jonah, they could refuse. Now, God has a way, like Jonah, to get people's attention if he really wants an outcome to take place. But ultimately, in the big picture, and we'll talk more about that, we are allowed to choose because that reveals to God our heart. Through our yielding to him, we grow, we grow in understanding. We grow in being like God in his image, trying to follow in his character, in his nature. Okay, so turn now to Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Is the word predestined used in the Bible? Yes, it is. It is used four times in the New Testament, all by Paul, in just two chapters. One in each, each of the epistles that he's written. So well, let's look at those. We'll start in the one in Romans. Romans 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, again, always go back to the foundation. We already discussed how God has a purpose from before creation to bring many children into his family. And since we've all sinned, then God knew only he could help us overcome sin and sin's penalty through the death of Christ. God elects, he predestines, some to be called earlier and some later according to his plan. The verse 33 gives you that concept where it says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This word elect is not like what we have coming up with an election. It's not about people voting for something. It literally means to choose. We aren't wise enough to know why God calls people at the timing that he does. We just have to trust that if God could create everything around us, if he could create this universe, he is calling people at the time that gives them the best chance to succeed, the best chance to reach his ultimate goal. But being called doesn't take away our free moral agency to reject it. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now please realize, nothing here says around this use of the word predestination or anywhere where it's used, Anything about people being predestined to be saved while others are damned forever to the lake of fire from before their birth. God isn't that way. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just. And those are terms used to describe God. Predestination is not about some people being condemned but has to do with when a person is called. So yes, it's a biblical concept, but it's speaking about when a person is called. The use of the word first, and you'll see that in the other example I'm going to show you as well, is this fascinating word to link because it signifies there's more to come. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19 through 23. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19 through 23. Christ was the firstborn of God, first to go from human to spiritual, being resurrected. It's about when God decides to tell. God will do everything he can for us to be conformed to the image of his son, the firstborn among many brethren. And God initiates everything. He is the one who puts this in motion for when he brings somebody out of darkness. We don't do anything. We don't bring anything to the table other than our response. We have to respond with obedience. We have been predestined by God calling us. 
And if and when we respond in baptism, well, we now have a destiny. Verses 3 through 12. And let's see the second example of when Paul uses this word and we read it through. But remember, it all relates to the time sequence for people being called. Ephesians 1, we'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should, and this word says be, is literally become, that we should become holy and without blame before him in love. Now, this phrase in him is an interesting one because it reflects that before the foundation of Jesus Christ, this is what enables a timing for people to be chosen throughout history because of the forgiveness that his sacrifice makes possible. And God picks that timing. He picks that timing for us being chosen, for us having the light turned on. Verse 5, having predestined us to the adoption as sons, and that's literally predestined us to sonship, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us acceptable in the beloved. So, what God predetermines is that human beings created in the image of God will have the opportunity for salvation. God has decided he will call some to the opportunity to eternal life today and some tomorrow. That's the purpose of God's calling and God's good pleasure. His desired outcome is to have as many obedient children raised to glory as possible. We have a part in that, of course. We were chosen to be sanctified and given the opportunity now. If you're here, if you're listening, if you're committing to God, that door is open to you. That makes this our day of salvation. But that does not mean our calling is a guaranteed path to salvation because we can come off it. Let's keep reading. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his glory, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, meaning over the course of the entire plan of God, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Even here, the salvation plan is complete only when all things are gathered to Christ. Our personal salvation is not complete until the resurrection where we're judged. And that's ultimately what awaits all humans. A chance of awareness, then it's a chance of judgment. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first, the word first again, trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So see, in reading these scriptures, there are two ways we can understand predestination. One way is to assume God has everyone's life planned out. He already knows what we're going to do, and that implies God knows before we were born exactly what we'd look like, who we'd marry, how we'd act, how we'd deal with situations. And if you believe that, realize you are believing that some were damned from birth. Another way to understand predestination is the perspective that God planned and purposed for human beings, which is to bring many sons to glory, right? From the beginning, Predestination is about the timing of God calling people into his great plan. Turn now to Acts 4 and verse 12. And I'd like to consider a little bit of mathematics in this one, because I think it's important to put perspective on what God says his intentions are and then how the plan is working itself out. It's not about calling everybody now before Christ's return. Acts 4 verse 12 says... Now, is there salvation in any other? I'm sorry, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. So, God's plan is for all to have the opportunity to be saved, and we're only saved by knowing Christ. It's through Christ's sacrifice that we are able to achieve the plan of predestination. Okay, so let's just take what we know in the world today. Roughly 8 billion people, and if you read the stats, 2 billion claim some kind of association to Christianity. Now, we know of those people, the smallest fraction are practicing Christians based on what the Bible commands. The others believe in other gods or no gods. We know John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, so let's just pick a number. Let's say more than 7 billion non-obeying Christians living today are condemned. What about the 50-plus billion that lived before Christ came to earth? Were all of them condemned? Do all of them have no chance? Absolutely not. All humans will ultimately be destined to be offered eternal life. Only a few are predestined at this time prior to Christ's return. Also, we realize this whole concept of God's plan by just simply looking at Adam and Eve. Go back to the very beginning. At the beginning, Adam and Eve only knew good, right? Only had God's influence, were in the Garden of, of Eden. Then, Satan came into the picture. Never forget, God let Satan come into Eden. Which means he was deliberately allowing him to present evil to Adam and Eve. That proves God has always had in his plan for every human to have to choose between evil and good. Right? And we know what happened. Satan came in. Eve was deceived. She convinced her husband. Both sinned. From there forward, all of mankind has been this mix of good and evil. This odd mixture. And during that time forward, the God of this earth has been Satan. He has been the one who has been leading things. Why is God doing that? It's in order to have human beings learn what we have to learn to meet our ultimate purpose, which is becoming children of God. It's only by being exposed to good and to evil that we learn to choose between the two. You don't learn it in any other way. Think about being a parent. We know our kids. We do observe their tendencies and in general, we know things about their character and their temperaments and their personalities, but we will never know their exact choices and everything that they're going to do, right? God allows each human being the fundamental freedom of having moments to choose between good and evil, between right and wrong. And that is done because of his loving nature. It's in order to teach us how to choose. Turn now to 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2, and then we're going to read 17 through 21. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 1. So we know some are called now, but even more have not been. And the majority of human beings' nature at this time is being influenced. Some first to teach others in the future. And again, God's desire is for all to be saved in their due time. Because God has the superior knowledge, we know this will enable the best chance of success for you and I have been called now. Even though we can shake our heads and say, yikes, we have a lot of help we're needed. That's, that's them, right. We say, I repent of my sins and I accept Christ as my Savior. I realize I'm wrong. I realize I can't do it on my own. Let's continue in verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's works, again, that isn't predestination, conduct, we have freedom of choice, Throughout the time of your stay here, in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
Jesus Christ, which is how God reconciles us back to him. It starts to bring us out of darkness, the darkness that the majority in the world are in currently. Notice what Peter says next in verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days. Those of you remember Dr. Zimmerman, I always remember him. Put your name in there. Who throughout or through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, not in yourself, are in God. This all has to do with predestination. God is allowing mankind to be deceived by Satan for a while to show humans we can't do it without following God. We can't do it without his Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, the world stays in darkness except for a very few who are called at this time before Christ's return. It should really humble us to be recipients of something that special and be called by God now. Is there evidence, you might ask? Is there proof that God is holding back his intervention at this time? Absolutely. Let's read it in Christ's own words. Turn to Matthew 13, verses 10 through 11. Matthew 13, 10 through 11. And again, I always want that big picture. As we read this, remember, God said he desires every human being possible to come to the knowledge of the truth, to have the chance to choose to repent, to obey, to be saved. And yet we know from the scriptures they're not. Matthew 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has not been given, I'm sorry, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So basically, they were talking to Christ and they were saying, why are you teaching these people these confusing parables? They don't get it. And Christ said, I'm deliberately hiding the truth from them. Turn now to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And as you turn to remember, Jesus was talking to Jews who were trying to follow what they read in what we call the Old Testament, who were keeping the Sabbath and the holy days and different food laws and other things we would agree with. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age, remember we talked about Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. God is intentionally allowing the God of this world to blind people now. So the light doesn't shine on them. They're intentionally being blinded so they, so they don't understand when they aren't ready. We all have to come to that point where we're ready and we realize we can't do it on our own. What we can take from this is it is not our job to call or say, try to save everybody now. It is our job to preach the gospel around the world. That's getting the message out for God to be able to work with. God predestines the timing of people's calling as part of his supreme plan. Even when God has decided that some people will play a role in history like the Pharaoh in Egypt, he was not predestined to die eternally, right? Ultimately, all will have a chance to understand the truth, and he desires all possible to ultimately be saved. See, God knows that as humans, we think we know better. Anybody with Raising a child sees that, but God sees that as his children now, as we're adults. We just do it in a way we think is less shrewd. We still think we know better. We're allowed to try our way. God knows all humans have to learn the vital lesson the hard way that any way of life different than God's correct way, in the end, is going to bring misery. Mankind has tried every alternative they can come up with for 6,000 years, 100 billion people. And that means most people are going to have to be brought back to life to receive their chance for salvation because they never got it in the first place. They are going to be brought back not to a second chance, but to their only chance for salvation. And that's a whole different topic. 
That's one that we discuss every fall holy day, right? When we talk through what the holy days picture. But God is very fair in offering every human being who has ever lived the opportunity for salvation. Now, let's look at a few verses now to clarify what happens after we are called. Turn to Matthew 20 and verse 16. Matthew 20 and verse 16. Since God truly is God, then it makes sense that we should follow him, right? He created this all. He made this possible for us. He gives us the path, path to entrance into his kingdom. But that's up to us. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged based on what we've done. Matthew 20 and verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Okay, we have a wrinkle here. Christ said many will be offered the opportunity for salvation in this life, but only few will be chosen. Called means we're offered the path salvation through Christ's sacrifice. Chosen refers to those who respond in action of repentance and baptism, accepting the calling. That's what allows us to receive God's spirit and become part of the body of Christ. So why? Why are only few chosen? The sad news is that only a few in each generation after hearing the truth, after having their mind opened enough to see the light, will choose to move forward and act on that opportunity to be a first friend. Why? God doesn't force his spirit on anyone. What about after we've accepted God's calling? After we've been baptized? After we have God's spirit? Can we still then neglect the offer of salvation? Or can we lose eternal life? Turn to Revelation 17, verses 12 through 17. I'm sorry, 12 through 14. Revelation 17, 12 through 14. And we're going to add another wrinkle to this concept. Now, some will argue God doesn't make mistakes. He wouldn't put his spirit in somebody who would fail because that would mean God failed. If we embrace that view, then what we're doing is we're ignoring all the other verses and scriptures that talk about and warn about losing eternal life, right? Revelation 17 and verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him we want to be part of that group, are called, chosen, and faithful. Ah, we had a piece here. Those who finally will inherit eternity are also called faithful. Once God extends his invitation or calling to a person, that person must choose whether to respond. Then they must choose to lose their chance of salvation through deception because he knows it's possible. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 11. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. He cannot deny himself. So this same Paul, who wrote about predestination, also mentioned that we need to endure. And if we don't stay faithful, we're denying Jesus Christ and when that happens, Jesus Christ will deny us and our chance for eternity. God is not going to trust and meet our needs. We have to change to adapt to what God wants. Turn now to 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11. And let's read what Peter tells us to clarify the expectations of Christians. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse... In, Therefore, brethren... Be even more vigilant, uh, diligent, diligent, let's try that. Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Again, we could stop there. And if you think about the concept of predestination, there would be absolutely no need to make our calling and election sure if you're predestined. Now let's go to the promise. For if you do these things, now again, you have to reflect back a little bit to what's written there. 
just before, I think in verse 5, is where he listed all these actions, these areas we are supposed to grow in, starting with being told to add to our faith virtue and so on all the way to love. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so, and that literally means in this manner, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Being in this everlasting kingdom of our Lord is what God plans for us. That's what his plan is all about. Move now to 2 Peter 2 and verse 1. 2 Peter 2 and verse 1. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the ways of truth will be blasphemed. Now move on to verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For if by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollution of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. See, it's talking about people who were called, who were chosen, meaning they repented, were baptized, received God's Spirit, and still turned away. They were not faithful. We see that warning throughout the Bible. Turn to Revelations 3, verses 10 through 13, and you'll recognize Revelations 3, right? That's the message the churches of Revelation to the seven churches. But think of that as we turn there. All seven were told, I know your works. And he who overcomes, that would make no sense if predestination were already set. There would be no reason to warn people to change and overcome. All right, so we're about to read the message to the Philadelphians. Revelation 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my commandments to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on this earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. It is takeable. Now we see the words that we want to hear Christ say at his return. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an absolutely mistaken understanding to believe predestination means God has predetermined our lives so that some are rewarded and some are punished. God could force everybody to be robots, right? But instead, we're supposed to participate. We're supposed to have a say in whether we choose to obey him or not. And having that liberty or that right to choose means what we decide daily can't be mapped out, right? We're involved in that. And that free will shows how we participate with God's instructions, whether we rely on his spirit. So God desires all people to be saved, but all people aren't going to be saved. It's what he wants, but he's not going to force it to happen. And at the end, God is going to end up with his outcome. His plan will take place. Because God knows the best time, the best approach for each of us, everybody who's ever lived, his plan will yield the highest degree of success ultimately. God is willing to do everything that he can for us. But it is ultimately up to us if we yield, if we submit, if we're humble, if we rely on him. And we're all going to stand before the judgment seats. And it's not just about us. Our neighbors have a predestination with God too. It may not be until after Christ's return. It may be at the great white throne judgment. 
I think that's this wonderful, unique understanding that we have in the church that helps us realize that. And it plays into God's plan of predestination. We understand that when Christ comes back, all those who are predestined to be called during this age and stayed with it are going to be resurrected to be with Christ. I would argue him using us, him using me as a first fruit will ultimately be used to embarrass and inspire others. If he could make it, I could make it. You know, if you could make Dan make it work. Whew. Please turn to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3, and let's, let's start concluding. Sal salvation involves this conversion process, and it's not merely this passionate expression and emotional desire to give, one heart, give one's heart to the Lord. And when we become God's spiritual children is return, God is then going to say, okay, now I have another job for you. We will have new responsibilities and that will be our next destiny. Then starts a whole new day of salvation when all the people that are on earth and have gone through the tribulation will then be taught and God will turn their lights on. First Timothy 2 and verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. No one is predestined to perish. There are occasions where God does guide our destiny, but it's wrong to think that we have no say in what happens in our lives. As a final verse, please turn to 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. God has predestined that he will call people at their exact timing and order according to his eternal plan. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's where the journey starts, right? He desires for all mankind to repent, to have that opportunity to be saved. That requires time. That requires space. That requires choices. And I think that's use of the word long-suffering is, is just fascinating to me because I look at it and how often do we say, when is it going to end, God? It's because God is long-suffering. He's more patient than we are and he's working out a plan that has its perfect timing. Yes, there will be a lake of fire. Yes, some will be destroyed. But that isn't his desire. And that ultimately shows this deep eternal love of God as our Father. I read something that I think is just very thought-provoking, and it's, it's follow the destiny that God has for us. 